Hi, Eric. What was your first computer? Hi, Adam. Um, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. I think my first computer from a long time ago was a super old 486 that we just happened to have and didn't do much, but we tended to use it. For what? Um, you just use it for general things. Like I remember I was like super young at the time, so we used it for uh, playing games. But the issue is none of the games really ran, so we uh, had to figure out a lot with DOS boot disks, if you remember those. RAM disk or boot disk? Um, a boot disk. Like you had to, to put a special uh, disk in the drive to make it boot to avoid the operating system completely to get the games to work. Ah, yeah. This is where you had to move the RAM, RAM to, an, to another location. Like there was a high, high RAM and low RAM or something like this, I remember. Yeah, files equals some number. Yeah, exactly. Equals some yeah, number. yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah, I was young enough. I never knew what any of those meant. There are actually multiple guests on the show which did exactly the same. So they, they had, you know, they started programming <laughs> just, you know, to make the games running. So it's, it was like a common common scheme. And so, so you started to hack DOS, basically? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, really, I just wanted to play a game, and there was no other real way to do it. So which games you played then? Um, way back in that time, it was, I think, the Ultima games that uh, were the cool role-playing games where you just, like, walk around in different worlds and find things and battle monsters. And uh, I don't remember a whole lot of games at the time, but that was the one that we had. Uh, what, <clears throat> what I remember with the... Uh... Pentium 486, no Pentium, we have 486 Intel. The first game I remember was uh, TIE Fighter. So if I hear no oh. 486, I always associate the machine with the TIE Fighter because someone <coughs> shown, me, shown me, you know, the first computer, what I saw, I, the first PC I saw was 486 uh, and with TIE Fighter. So I associate, you know, 486 with TIE Fighter. This is this is why I'm always asking, you know, which game was it? Yeah, I don't remember um, much in the way of TIE Fighter. Yeah, this was like uh, Star Wars simulation. So you can you know, fly and shoot or something like this, yeah. Yeah, I remember a lot of the games, the computer was like on the low end of a 486. It might have been a 459.3 um Okay. But it did not work too well. So and um, so you keep playing games. So how how you started programming? What what was your first language? Um, I think way back in the day when I first started programming, it was just the regular old basic, not even Visual Basic. Like you'd type the number ten at the beginning of the line, yeah. and I think it was printer echo, and you know you just write that way. So there was no integrated development environment. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I just got some books from the library and started it out. So um, you did it with the PC? Yeah, I think it was on that or we'd gotten a, a Pentium at the time because those had come out and I just kind of started coding a couple things just because I thought it was interesting to uh, make the computer work. Yeah. And um, why basic? I mean, it was strange with PC because probably you had you know, to know to load a program to run basic. Usually if you start, you know, with Commodore, Atari or, or ZX Spectrum, the, uh, the programming language was already, you know, the operating system of the of the of the, of the computer, but on, on on PC it was a little bit strange. Um, yeah, other people had um, the cool ones or the Commodore sixty fours. I never had one of those. We just happened to have the PC, and then it went to Pentium, and um, then I was able to code it and get some things to work. Okay, and, and and why you started to code? I just thought it was interesting. Like all there's all these games in the computer. What's making those work? You know, how can I get it to do some things? Also, um, I thought it was cool to code games, but I didn't realize how much work it actually was to do that. So I've never actually written a game. 
So, so, so you wanted to write a game. This was your motivation, right? Yeah, way back in the day, you know, you play a game and then it's always fun. Like, oh, this will be cool. What if I made a game? And before you realize how much work that actually is, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. So, and, and what was your first, you know, how to call it, more serious applications, you know, beyond go to 10? Oh, no, 20, of course. Yeah, beyond the, the go to 10. So I was just, uh, you know, I, I remember writing a bunch of random programs that did all kinds of random things. Um, and then probably about like the 2000-ish time frame, I started writing random little web applications to do things. They were just like, I wanted an interactive web page of my own. So uh, I wrote some of those. Um, and then I worked for the university writing some things for the housing department. Okay. And which university was it? Uh, Illinois State University, all the way in normal Illinois. Okay, and was it a uh, computer science? Um, I was uh, a major called information systems, which apparently had some of a difference because at that time uh, I wanted more to run the computers, not to write the code on them. I still think writing code was fun, and uh, I ended up writing code more, but uh, my actual degree is in information systems, whatever oh. that means. And what's the difference between information systems and computer science? That's a really good question. Okay. So uh, is it still the distinction now or was it just back then? Um, there was a distinction back then. I'm sure there still is. You could probably find somebody who could tell you what that distinction is. Um, I'm not really sure. Like the thing that I tend to focus on, like I think software is fun to work on, but I try to focus predominantly on the what and why of why we're writing the software rather than just like making something a, a millisecond faster. Okay. So, and, and before you study, you, you wrote some, you, you were able to code or you learned, you know, programming at, at the university? Um, probably a little bit of both. Like I, you know, just took, I had an interest in learning how to code. So I started picking up books and teaching myself and then took like some random classes at the time. Um, so I did those. Um, and then I got a modicum of formal education at a university, but maybe not as much. That's probably what the difference between computer science and information systems was. Okay. So, and and, and uh, which was your next programming language? So it started with BASIC. So what was the next one? Yes, it was BASIC. And uh, obviously, like regular old BASIC doesn't scale well to the web. Um, so back at that time, PHP was all the rage because that's what you could use to code a custom uh, application that was an interactive website. So I just had a server running in my um, room that was on uh, one of the dynamic DNS systems so that I could have a public domain uh, out on the internet um and wrote a bunch of things in php um way back at the time which looking back on it you know it was a neat thing to start with but i don't touch php anymore yeah but is this uh, still no uh back to the, to fashion right now so it's a very very fashionable language i think i think right now so b back then as i remember at least in europe no one wanted to use you no know, php it was like you know uh, kids uh, toy language but right now is this like you no know, after after facebook used you no know, php to to develop the whole thing is this more serious language became more serious one yeah it's become a bit more of a serious language as they have i think they have uh support for classes and a yeah. whole lot of the things that make you know, give you the ability to actually code in it and remember what you did um way back when um you know when i was working on these things like spaghetti code would be a complementary term okay and um what you wrote was php no, um, 
accept your your website something more serious or interesting or just yeah i remember one of the applications that i worked on way back in the day was a, a dining ordering form so the university had a number of different departments that would periodically have events or there was a meeting or you know somebody needed to to schedule an order of something with the dining centers uh, so i wrote the software that enabled them to do that um dining ordering scheduling you could pick what you wanted and um that's how the chefs knew what to prepare okay And, and you st uh, stick with PHP or what was your, no, the next one? Uh, yeah, that was done in PHP um, because that was in the university. Um, once I graduated was when I actually went to coding more formal applications um, than in Java, which I didn't know at the time. Um, but then I graduated and of course they said, hey, Eric, you're going to be a Java developer now. And I said, that sounds like a perfectly good thing. I'm a Java developer now. <laughs> okay. So what was your impression of Java? Um, back when I first started, I didn't like it because it actually forced me to do things in a way that now is a lot more structured and a lot better. Um, but it was just to me a little harder to get started because I didn't know where to start with a lot of things because I couldn't just start coding wherever I had wanted to. Um, but lo and behold, those things have turned out really well for me because now I actually figure out how to code applications rather than just like have a bunch of spaghetti variables strewn all over the place with uh, registered globals. Okay. And, and you remember the Java version which you started with? It was oh, uh, yeah, it was probably uh, Java 1.5 had just come out at the time. So that was in one, uh, that was in 2004. Wow. It's a pretty late. So uh, JDK 1.5 was a very modern java already yeah it was uh well we wouldn't call it modern java anymore because java is what it just turned 25 the other day um it was modern at the time um but yeah it had things like the for each loop uh mm -hmm. i think and a whole lot of the other things so i'm not you know one of the original cool club kids who used sun uh jre back in the day of like 1.0 um, you know, I came in around the the one four one five time, mm -hmm. but I think one five one five already had annotations, right? Um, yeah, I think it had the the initial introduction of annotations. Yeah, exactly. Put them on classes or a couple things. Um, it was in Java eight that they finally introduced uh, type annotations, which is what was that JSR three ten. 3.10 was dependency injection, I think. This this at inject, you know, or or 3.10 uh, yeah, is my... Java Java date, so we have to be careful. You know, 3.30, 3.10. And there was a like, Java new time. Oh, yeah. 3.10 is Java time. Sorry, my yeah. computer's totally frozen now. Um, uh, you are cheating. Yeah, no, no, there is no internet allowed on my show, you know. <laughs> oh, uh-oh. Well, yeah. Um, anyways, just, no, kidding. Ju just, called, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. There, there was something that got introduced in Java 8 called type annotations, where instead of putting the annotation on like a class or a method, you could put it on yeah, a variable. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Um, Okay, and and you started the uh, Java after university, right? Um, yeah, it was after the university. I mean, we did a little bit of it during the university, but it was predominantly after that I kind of went all in on the Java platform. So you started to work for a company or were you a freelancer or what was your... Yeah, no, I was working for a company uh, in Chicago called Formsite.com. That's F-O-R-M for creating forms. And one of the reasons that I have to spell it like that is a lot of people, you say form site, they hear porn site with a... Oh, <laughs> okay. Very different things. And uh, I assume there was some service involved, right? Um, yeah, the way that Formsite works was um, the intention was you have a guy who's in an organization who just needs to collect some information from the internet, like to run a survey, have an event registration form. 
And a long time ago, there was no, you know, Google Docs or there was no, you know, Microsoft yeah. forms or things like that. So how could people get a form on the internet? And what happened was they would talk to the IT guys. The IT guys would say, oh, I'm sorry, we're, we're too busy. We won't be able to even consider your request for another six months. Um, so people would come to our site. We had an online interactive uh, form builder where you could create the questions, collect the responses, and manage them. So it made the lives a lot simpler for people who needed to run events. You know, you run a school, you want a minor order registration form. You could just create a form of whatever you wanted and collect the data. Okay. But uh, what you did, you, you programmed on the back end. Uh, was it a Java E application? Was it a servlet, JSPs? It was just predominantly a whole bunch of servlets um, behind the scenes. So we had okay. raw servlets running the whole thing. Um, and when I got there, the application implemented single thread models. So the performance, you know, way back in the time, not too stellar. Okay. And which server was it, Tomcat? Yeah, it was all based on Tomcat back at the time because your choices uh, were either like a Tomcat or one of the heavyweight uh, application servers like uh, WebLogic or JBoss. Okay. And so Tomcat was just kind of the natural choice. Okay. But uh, I think for you, it was probably terrible experience if you know PHP and you you know compare it to servlets. It's a complete different experience, right? Yeah, it was significantly different because you couldn't just like throw code anywhere you wanted. I mean, you had JSPs, but we weren't using those um, because we had some HTML rewriters. Um, so yeah, it was it was very different, and it took me reading a couple different uh, books and just having to practice a lot to come up to speed. So, um, fortunately, I did that though. So, what what happened after after form site? So. What was your next, you know? Um, yeah, so after Formsite, I worked a lot in the, the health insurance space. There was a company called Norvax, which now is called GoHealth, that does, um, <laughs> you know, uh, online health insurance applications because in the United States, the health insurance is tied to employment um, and it's not provided by all employers. So there was a significant market of people who needed to obtain insurance on their own. And it used it was difficult for them to do that. And so the question is, if I'm just a, a person with a regular job who doesn't get insurance through the job, how do I find that? And so they had a platform that connected people to a series of brokers so that they could purchase health insurance. Um, and because that uh, providing your data to obtain health insurance is essentially a form, my experience of having built uh, a lot of online form processing systems came into play because I could deal with things like how do you answer all these insurance questions um, in a consistent manner to get people into the system. Okay. And was it still Tomcat or was it was different stack? Um, yeah, that was still on Tomcat, but it was predominantly the Spring framework. So it wasn't just raw servlets anymore. I had to interact with a lot more things because we had different uh, backend processing systems. Like there was a quote engine that would give you the quote. Um, and then the aim of my insurance processing application that I was working on was designed to get people from receiving a quote to making an application. Okay. And um, so you liked the experience a bit more? Or was it still? Did I like which a bit more? The the programming experience, you know, because now you had Tomcat. And, um, and yeah, Spring. it was a little bit better because there was a framework in place that gave me the the location of how do I add something new to the system. I only had to like annotate a class and put that up. Um, those were, of course, the days of Spring XML wiring, so you still had to do a little bit. Um, but it just it made it a little easier for me to add things into a system because there were clear points of integration that the framework provided. Okay. So, and after that, so in one point, 
what happened then? This, we're probably in around 2008 already, right? Yeah, well, we're in about 2008, 2009. Um, at, at that time, I you know, was dating a girl who I'm married to now and moved to New York to spend some time with her, um, which is a nice uh, opportunity. And you know, during that transition, I still did some coding and you know, I worked with some coding things in New York City down on Wall Street. Um, interesting experience, but what I kind of decided at that time was that I'd been building a lot of applications. I knew how to do that, and I was kind of getting specs from other people that would say, like, hey, here's the code to write. And I would say, well, what is this supposed to do? And I didn't have that answer. Um, and a lot of those came from, like, the people on the business side who were talking about the problems that the code was designed to solve. And so I decided to make a switch into consulting, and uh, I also liked software security. So at that time, I switched to a major static analysis firm called Fortify Software um, that did static program analysis to find security flaws. And I worked with them for a while, um, not coding, but guiding people at how to secure their code. But the Fortify, in one point of time, it was open source, right? So um, No, Fortify was never uh, an open source product. It was always commercial. There are a couple open source um, code analyzers. None of them are super great, though. Like, you can use a FindBugs, you can use um, the Checker Framework, or you can use a couple others, and each one of them will find certain types of issues. Um, but what Fortify had back at the time, which was unique in about 2010, was a powerful data flow analysis engine that could um, detect the way that you'd pieced an application together to figure out if the application could be controlled by a remote attacker. But was, what I remember, you could get uh, Fortify for free and then was bought by another company and there was over, wasn't Um You might have been able to get it for free. There was a book that came out called Secure Programming with Static Analysis that had a copy of Fortify that came with the book. Um, but otherwise, if you were getting it for free, that was news to me. Um, but yeah, it was eventually bought by uh, Hewlett Packard, yeah, exactly. which of course became Hewlett Packard Enterprise, that then is now owned by Microsoft or Microfocus. Um, and then they spun it back and they call it the Fortify brand again. So it's gone through a lot of names. Okay, this is your security background because of your... Yeah, yeah. so uh, I did that for a long time. And then, of course, I joined the uh, Oracle Java Platform Group, which was uh, a really interesting experience. And this is probably how we met, because you delivered a session at Java One, and I had some questions, yep. and we had a chat. Okay, and I thought that you were you are actually a Sun employee. And you started with Oracle? Um, no, I had never been a Sun employee. I'm glad I kind of gave that vibe because all this old Sun employees tend to be really smart people. Um, I had joined that group in about the 2013 timeframe. If you remember, the old Java platform used to just get nailed by a lot of security vulnerabilities on a regular basis. And, you know, I'd been doing the static analysis for a while, helping companies secure applications. And I just kind of looked around and I spotted that opportunity. And I said, you know what, if I understand uh, software security like I think I do, then I should be able to go join that team and, you know, help uh, mitigate a lot of these problems in the core platform. And we did a pretty good job because it went from frequent exploits to having about two years without a zero day. Yeah. This this is what I remember. This was exactly your talk, you know, how, how the security of Java improves. But this was uh, one of the very last sessions at Java M. You remember this? This was probably Thursday or Friday. And I said, okay, this is an interesting <laughs> talk. And 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 I just, you know, we attended your session. And it was really interesting because you exactly said, then we had chat afterwards, but this was actually a great session. 
have to say. It was probably 2013, 2014, one of the last Java ones, right? Yep. Uh, it would have been around that time, 2013, 2014. Um, you know, we would give talks on things. Some of them are recorded, some of them weren't. It just happens to be based on who's in the room. Um, so I do have a nice recorded talk up that's about uh, me talking about cryptography and how to properly handle cryptography within the Java platform using Java cryptographic architecture. Uh, but I did do another talk another year about threat modeling the, JV, the JVM, um, which is about establishing which threats are present at which location. Okay. And um, how how long you st you're still at Oracle? No, I uh, I left there in about 2016. So now I work with a cool company called Contrast Security that uh, was a Duke's a Cho Duke's Choice Award winner from around like 2013, I think. Um, and we do security instrumentation, seeing inside of apps to use the runtime to effectively secure itself. So a lot of the analysis that you used to have to do on static analysis to figure out where an application was in, was vulnerable and make guesses, um, you don't have to do that anymore because you can just watch the running applications. Okay. And uh, back to Oracle, you enjoyed your time at Oracle? So was it a nice experience, interesting? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting place. There's a lot that goes on there. You get to kind of see a lot of the technology at the core. Um, you know, people love to attribute all kinds of malicious things to the group or think they have, you know, uber secret plans. Um, I never experienced it or I wasn't a part of any kind of secret cabal for anything. It was basically a bunch of people doing the boring work that open source teams tend not to like to do, like you know, licensing and talking about compatibility and, you know, talking about usage. Yeah, this was exactly my experience as well. So I never worked for Oracle, but at the chat, you know, with the engineers that there was actually no secret plan, nothing. They just try you know, to deliver as, as good product as possible. Yeah, you get accused of having secret plans all the time or like, oh, how you're going to do something. I think Brian Getz had a funny uh, tweet at one point about like how a portion of his day was involved in secret meetings. Um, I, I don't know. I never experienced that. It was just a lot of doing the work. You tweeted something about Jakarta or Quarkus or something like this, and I thought, you know, you are a journalist or reporter, but you are actually working as a security researcher, right? Um, yeah, so I, over the course of years of, you know, having written a lot of code and having done consulting and product management, um, one of the next things that I wanted to learn was marketing because you have to get a message across, right? If you just write the code and nobody uses the application, you're not going to get a lot of benefit there. So I figured, how do I get a lot of these messages across? Um, so the marketing role I thought would be particularly interesting or a new skill to learn. Um, so in essence, I actually do marketing, but I'm one of the few people in marketing who can talk uh, in depth about garbage collection algorithms uh, or graph analysis. Um, so I do that. But yeah, I've been working a lot lately with um, the Red Hat's new Quarkus framework just to pick up some some other applications because I always have to be writing something. And like that is a really nice, well done framework. Okay. And uh, so you, you are using uh, Quarkus right now or... You, you were hired to, to market Quarkus, so... No, I have no marketing affiliation with Quarkus or the Red Hat team. Um, and for contrast, I don't think we do anything in particular with them. Um, I just happen to like it a lot. Um, you know, in order to talk about code and speak to people about cybersecurity or how applications are hacked, um, I have to know how applications are put together, which involves a lot of coding and just figuring out the architectures. So I do tend to do a fair amount of this anyways, but I just kind of do it for fun and entertainment. 
Um, and uh, as I picked up the Corcus framework, just so much of it makes sense. It's so easy to do things. Um, I ported an old application to Quarkus, and I would say probably about 85 to 90% of what I did was to delete code that I'd never wanted to write in the first place. Yeah. So before we uh, we, we talk about that, um, just uh, about security. So what, what you said is, uh, right now, it is just you know, sufficient to uh, observe an application to know whether it is secure or not, right? Um, well, there's different ways to secure an application. Like my favorite is to watch what the application actually does. So if you observe an application and you're watching it from the inside, you think about the types of risks that are present in an application. Like maybe it has SQL injection. Well, if the application never actually engages the SQL APIs or the JDBC, the SQL injection doesn't matter because the application doesn't actually do it, right? When I was back at, uh, as a part of the Oracle group on the Java platform team, actually one of the ways that I figured out who couldn't help me with anything was the types of people who came to me and talked about cross-site scripting. Um, and the reason for this is cross-site scripting is very prominent vulnerability in a lot of web applications because it lets people take systems over, but the core Java platform has no concept of web, so that vulnerability is completely irrelevant. So if we focus on the APIs that the application actually engages and we focus on securing the way that it uses those APIs, all of a sudden, all of the effort that we can do is going to be well spent because we're focused on the right problem. Okay, so what it basically means is what you could do, you could deploy a kind of agent and watch which APIs the application is using, and then you know which uh, security problems are possible, right? Exactly. So the way the contrast uh, hooks into uh, Java applications specifically is we use the instrumentation APIs. So we hook into that same minus Java agent flag that you use with like a new relic or app dynamics. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, what we do is we watch data come in where we were talking about frameworks earlier, like um, you know, Spring, raw servlets. You see that data come into the application. It's going to go through a whole series of events in the application, like being put together with different strings, being combined, and then ultimately it's going to be used in a manner, right? It's going to be used maybe in a file name. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't sanitized it, now you've just given people the ability to request random files on your system, right? That's not a good thing. So you just kind of watch this and you can pick out security vulnerabilities based on just watching the APIs. Exactly. Because if you never write to, uh, you never have an IO, no sockets, no, no, no sockets to a database. And even this is visible through JDBC. So, you know, exactly in Java that we are, you know, in the, um, we are using SQL connection, then something goes Correct. with the database. And then you probably have some, like a pattern detection or something like that. So, you know, if, if this string, you know, travels over the wire, something can happen and then you can intercept the call and do something with it. Right. Yeah, well, it's less so on pattern detection because there's a couple different ways that people defend applications, one of which is you have a network control in place like a WAF, and these are transparent to a lot of developers. And they'll just run a whole bunch of pattern matches against an application like, does it look like a SQL injection attack? Does it look like a cross-site scripting attack? Does it look like a file path manipulation attack, right? And if you watch the actual APIs, you can actually do the right defense at the right time because, for example, SQL injection requires that the SQL APIs run. Yeah. So if you have better context on the back end, and now you don't really need to do as many pattern matches because you know specifically what you're looking for, so you can avoid doing the pattern matches that you're not looking for. 
So this is for me is like your system has multiple subsystem which subsystems which are responsible for a specific IO, like file IO, you know, database IO or whatever. Yes. And they became active, like this plugin becomes active if it knows, okay, now we are talking to a database, right? Right. So because you call an API like the file constructor or paths.get, you know, that's the appropriate time where we know that you're accessing a file. So we know what we're supposed to watch out for. So we just check it there. And what happens then? Do I get a report or, or is it like, you know, proactive that it just uh, stops the application or prevents from calling or I get, you know, some, I don't know, some report afterwards. So what, what happens with the data or with the fact? Yeah, well, you can, you can do a couple different things. So one of the predominant ones that people want to do is uh, a lot of organizations, they might have like a security team that goes through to do a review of an application. Um, and, and that's a lot of work because now you got to get those guys, you got to schedule, they got to know what they're looking for. Um, but let's take, you know, you for an example, for example, where you write a lot of different applications for a lot of different people, you probably don't have a dedicated security team reviewing your work, right? So it's just the same exact manner where like with New Relic, it tells you when you have a performance problem, this just tells you when you have a security problem. And so it'll inform you in real time based on usage without you having to exploit the application. So you don't need to be you don't need to be looking around and saying like okay now I'm going to go hunt around for SQL injection vulnerabilities now I'm going to go hunt around for this now I'm going to do my dynamic scan of an application you just use it like normal so every test of the application every action becomes an inadvertent security test yeah and um, you could even combine it with uh, code coverage and know exactly know which code was actually used you know. In production. Yeah. So the way that instrumentation works, you're hooked into the methods. So because you're in the method, the two locations that you tend to want to be is at the entry or at the exit, if you know your ASM. Um, otherwise, because you're instrumenting the code, you can do like thorough block analysis. And if you want to get to that level of code coverage, you can get to each of those. Um, that That's a little too much work, though. So there's a lot of things that a tool like this would do in order to find vulnerabilities accurately. But you don't give people all of that information because it becomes too cumbersome to look for. I mean, if you've ever done like a block flow analysis of a large scale application, man, is that a big graph. Okay. And how much overhead is it? So if I activate your agent, so... Yeah, it uh, all of the overhead is based on what you want it to do. So as you're looking for a secure, like as you just have the agent automatically look for vulnerabilities, um, you can go with a lot of overhead, in which case you get a lot of information or not a lot of overhead, like an acceptable amount, um, which come in the form of stack traces because you and I know how to read those and we know how to spot the code that we've worked on. So the rule is the more stack traces you get, the more of an impact you have. So to look for vulnerabilities, you know, maybe you want to turn that on for a little while while you're testing an application. You don't mind the performance impact. That's cool. Uh, when you have the application running in QA, maybe you want a little less. So you decrease the number of stack traces you want. Um, but then in production, as you go to have your applications operating, you know, for actual customers, um, that's great, but the truth of the matter is when you have the modern internet, it's not only customers who come along, it's a lot of other people who come along trying to take things, like they launch random crawlers and just try to break into applications. So it's those ones where you want an actual defensive control in place, 
that will look and instead of reporting to you that there's a security flaw, you want it to take automated action and like throw a, a security exception or a runtime exception, exception and block the execution of code based on when a vulnerability is actually taking place. Okay, and being so, exploited. So the first two stages, staff and QA, is very, very similar actually to profiling, right? So what pro, to the profiling? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people uh, analogize it to profiling. Yeah. Okay. So and and okay. So actually, you have an interesting job right now. So um, yeah, and and uh, the uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun because I get to deal with software. I get to deal with like compiler level analyses. Uh, if I want to talk about block analysis, I'm able to do that. Um, and then cybersecurity, I think, is always an interesting field because there's actual stakes where people are breaking into things and taking uh, yeah. data. So and then you mentioned that uh, you were able to delete a lot of code by moving to Quarkus. So which yep. application you ported and from where? Oh, I just write a lot of my own software uh, on the side. So a couple of years ago, I started working on some um, things to automate a lot of the work that I have to do around the house. Um, and it's things like, you know, on an annual basis, I just want to make sure that my insurance coverage rate doesn't go up. So I have to remember to do that. Um, I'm located in Connecticut in the United States, where one interesting thing that we have is we don't have natural gas lines. So we have to get the delivery of home heating oil that comes in a truck that they pump in. And you have to negotiate the rate. And the question is, how do you know what that rate is? Do you have you know, a, a better rate? Do you know what to do? So I just built myself a home automation tool that monitors all these things for me. And this year alone, it saved me probably about fourteen hundred dollars. Oh, nice! And and what you used is it Java? Of course, it's Java. But what what do you used to build? The yeah, system? pretty much all my stuff is in Java for the same reason that I speak English because it is an easy way for me to communicate to a machine. Um, so the whole thing is done in Java. It used to be done, uh, I forget what framework. Yeah, it used to be uh, like a bunch of JaxRS stuff because those are endpoints that I could communicate to and I knew how to write it. Um, and then when I started spotting a lot of people talking about Quarkus, um, it just it kept looking good. So I checked it out and uh, I just I deleted a bunch of things. Right. I switched from raw JDBC where I had to manage my connections and like figure out how to talk to the database and where that thing was going to be. Um, to have things as re recorded as panache entities. So all of the code that I did for joins went away. All the code that I did for com connection management went away. Uh, all the things that I did to manage state and relationships, that stuff was gone. Um, the panache code is just so much easier to read that like I'm actually, I'm, I'm hanging out. Uh, obviously I'm not going anywhere now because of the virus, um, but I just kind of work on this things in the evening and it's, uh, uh, it's fun. So, and, and before you had just JaxRS on the raw Tomcat, I assume, again, right? Yeah, it was just JaxRS and Tomcat. You know, you deploy it as a, a Maven um, you know, war file, and then you run it in Tomcat in the IDE. Um, and so I would run it that way. But like through Quarkus with the hot reloads, like it's a lot faster and there's less code. So it's great. So, okay. So I also use Quarkus a lot. Um, and I, I usually porting from uh, Java e applications, so there is less to delete, but it's uh, still interesting actually experience. Uh, yeah, for me it's been it's been excellent. Like I I never wanted to write all that connection code in the first place because it's just it's a lot of work, right? Nobody thinks, oh wow, I get to write my join like this. How do I handle those relationships? How do I handle loading? Um, where do I put the transactional annotation? 
right with Quarkus, it's really just simplified a lot of that stuff. And uh, I edit the code, and if I change it, it immediately reloads. Uh, everything is handled, and uh, like a lot of the stuff that I didn't want to deal with just went away. Have you looked at uh, the extension mechanism in Quarkus? Um, which extension mechanism? So what you can do with Quarkus, you can write your own extensions. So it's, uh, you know, all the dependencies in Quarkus, like Panache, is actually an extension. And it uh, comprises two parts, like deployment and runtime. And why mm -hmm. I'm asking you this? Because you could actually hook your security framework into Quarkus using extensions. Oh, got it. Um, so that's an interesting idea. I haven't looked into writing Quarkus extensions because my you this know, is I tend you know to this is this aim. is less less interesting for you as a you know for your home automation stuff yeah. and more a commercial idea for your company because uh, if yeah, you so that if you write the yeah. extensions, what you can do you can actually record behavior which gets replied uh, uh, in 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 huh. run, at runtime, and you can write proxies which hook into whatever you like. You can, you know, uh, deploy classes, servlets, or whatever like. So this is like, uh, this is, how to call it? So you can place, you, you can do a bunch of things, but uh, in, in your particular case, uh, what, what will happen is uh, uh, Quarkus will generate proxies for classes where, where you can actually integrate your security framework. And, 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 and Interesting. And, I'll have to take a look at that. Um, yeah. So the way that those the way that those problems are generally analyzed is things like what's the addressable market for Quarkus? How many people have it? Like how many companies are using it? And what are those applications um, to kind of justify the cost of investment? Um, and then beyond that, on a security analysis, you need to monitor a lot of things. Like one of the things that a lot of applications do is base 64 encoding and decoding. Um, which Quarkus actually does if you deploy it up to AWS Lambda. I think it base 64 encodes the entire bodies um, to get through the API gateway, um, right? So things like um, URL encoder and URL decoder, which were introduced back in Java 8, um, those are not core Quarkus classes, but those are something that we need to analyze as well. So on the instrumentation side or figuring out where you put the appropriate security hooks, um, the, the major aim that you have when you're instrumented inside of an application is to figure out uh, where you need to be and basically be only at those locations because then you have a, a much better performance impact. Um, if you know the Battle of Thermopylae Pass from your old, um, was that a Greek history where the, you know, they defended that one particular location, it's a lot like that of figuring out where you need to go. So the question would be, would Quarkus extensions enable me to get to that uh, Thermopylae Pass? I don't think so, but uh, what, uh, you, what, you, what you get in Quarkus extension mechanism, you can, you can relate to other extensions so you will know that actually you know your application is using uh, amazon lambda or something like that so you can do more specific stuff you know and um, api specific stuff this was just a basic idea yeah that stuff is really interesting because you really need to defend applications based on what they actually do and you know some things are different in lambda some things are different uh on premise and i don't you know i don't know specifically how panache works under the hood all i know as a person who codes with it is that it works very well so what panache does is actually inherits from hibernate classes so it's like the hibernate yep. the, yeah the persistence framework and if you take a look you know the super classes from from panache you will find uh, entities which use JPA, API, JP, JPA APIs, which in turn is um, Hibernate.
Yeah, I know it uses a bunch of Hibernate things. And I think what I like most about uh, that Panache framework is that it takes all the things that I never wanted to do with Hibernate anyways and does them for me. Yeah, yeah I also like it. So what you can really do with Panache and JaxRS, I think to write a CRUD, yeah. you need two classes, exactly two. One is the, you know, the endpoint, the JaxRS, and then a single entity. Yep. And and uh, with JSONB, you can even serialize, you know, the entity over over JSON back and forth without, you know, involving any additional framework. Oh, okay. For for the back and forth with JaxRS, uh, I tend to code various DTOs because then I have control over specifically what level of the data is sent back. But I should probably go and take a look at the JSONB um, so that I can avoid having to code these uh, DTOs. Yeah, exactly. The DTOs is just, you know, uh, cumbersome huh. to, to, to write. And what you can do, you can have, if you have public attributes, they get serialized, but you can place, um, I think it's called JSON property annotations on the attributes. Huh. And then uh, you can change the name. If you put JSON transient, then uh, it it won't be serialized. So uh, you can save a lot of code, you know, because DTDOS well, are Well, really I know what I'm going to be doing later. Um, I guess my next question is when I'll be able to outsource the entire application development to Quarkus. I mean... Uh, you you are excited about Quarkus, but uh, actually the whole programming model is uh, microprofile in Java E. Actually, this is uh, this was uh, available for a longer time, except Panache. Panache, oh. Panache is a little bit extreme. So this is why I ask you because if you just use Tomcat with uh, you know with JaxRS and JDBC, this was a this is a actually a lot of work to write an application. You are absolutely correct. Yes, it was. This is this is this is terrible. But with um, with uh, Java E or MicroProfile, you could achieve similar experience with three classes, actually. So you would get an entity, huh. an entity manager, and the JaxRS, and you are also good to go. You know, there's not, nothing that new without any XML, without nothing. And this is also what uh, what made me uh, uh, smile a little bit. You said, you know, heavyweight Whitefly. And um, in some companies, actually, who, who use... Well, I said heavyweight JBoss. I wouldn't really call Wildfly. Yeah, JBoss and I mean, Whitefly. Wildfly is a... A big, but it's pretty. It's pretty light for being big. Yeah, but Jabos and Whitefly is uh, the same actually. So Whitefly is the open source version of Jabos. But w w yeah, why I smiled is um, the um, some companies ask me about you know Quarkus and they use Whitefly and uh, and I show them Quarkus and they are not that impressed. So okay, so a little bit faster, but it's not you know a huge yeah. revolution. So. Um, Back then, probably, but right now, all the Java e servers are actually pretty small. And Quarkus is, you measured actually the memory of Quarkus? Um, I didn't mention the memory, but it tends to be pretty low. You know what's, what's, what's crazy with Quarkus? That uh, your application, if it's, if it's just, you know, without any cache, it's just a simple CRUD application. The memory mm -hmm. footprint is probably smaller than empty Tomcat. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah, I, um, I I knew it was low, but I haven't really been looking at it because to me that hasn't been a problem. Yeah, because um, yeah, if you if you yeah, there's also not a problem to me. But um, I am a consultant and I got lots of questions now regarding uh, Java memory and 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 heavyweight and and bloated or whatever. And and the funny thing with Quarkus is what Quarkus does: it analyzes the uh, bytecode and it just you know uses bytecode with like tree shaking in JavaScript. We have now tree tree shaking uh, in, in Java with with Quarkus, and uh, it doesn't use any reflection at runtime. So it basically, you know, it pre-generates all the bytecode using the extensions, and okay. then th this is why it starts fast. But because there is no yeah. reflection and everything is optimized, and Quarkus application tend to be smaller than than uh, Tommy or Tommy's uh, Tomcat or Jetty. No, tend to be it is yeah, smaller. Well, the, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the rule is generally if you do the work in advance, it's faster when you need to use it. So that's that's kind of cool that it's automatically generating the bike code in advance so that it doesn't have to reflect all over. Okay, cool. So um, what else makes you excited these days with Java? So you found Quarkus, you're excited about that. So anything else would you like in Java right now? Um, the, the micro profile, I haven't really looked at those guys a whole lot. I think I wrote an article about them at one point, but, um, I didn't see as much from them in the way of messaging for me to figure out what exactly they did. Um, I just saw a notion of, you know, it's micro profile, it's Jakarta EE, it's micro profile, it's Jakarta EE. And I couldn't figure out what the difference between those two things were or why it should rise to kind of a high level. Um, it might be the case that I'm more excited about Quarkus um, because it puts the micro profile things together in a way that I was able to see them, even though they may very well exist in micro profile on their own. Okay. Um, what you, what you yeah. could do, you, you, you can t take a look at um, Helidon. This is a framework from Oracle. Oh, yeah. Um, Michael Redlick has been talking a lot about Helidon. Okay. And this is very, very similar to Quarkus. So Quarkus is a bit more oh, okay. aggressive. I didn't know that. Yeah, this is uh, very similar. With uh, Helidon, you have a little bit more control uh, about you know the main method. Quarkus is more opinionated huh. and more aggressive with optimization. Okay. But Helidon is very, very similar to Quarkus from Oracle. Also uses microprocessor. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I knew that Helidon existed, but I hadn't really looked at it. Mm -hmm. And and for, just take a look at the homepage. This is uh, actually a uh, Oracle product, but it looks like you know okay. startup. So it is complete. So this is like uh, really really nicely done. So um, about MicroProfile and Jakarta E, the relation is for me simple, but it's still you know lots of discussion going on. Uh, Jakarta E, or there was first J2E, then was Java E, and now we have Jakarta E. And the yeah. Jakarta is more like the uh, you know the I call it you no know, the base boring operating system. And uh, MicroProfile was like uh, attempt, you know, in what was it? When was it? Five years ago, I guess, to uh, you know move uh, or or to make Oracle a little bit angry to ship Java eight faster. Back then, there was a huge discussion when Java will ship, and and the community was uh, you know founded around MicroProfile, and they started oh, yeah. you know to innovate faster than Jakarta E. And at the beginning, right. it was just a subset of Jakarta E. And then they uh, um, they got more and more cloud native APIs. So there is low, like okay. uh, Prometheus metrics, and there is Open Tracing, Open API, uh, fault tolerance, and uh, reactive messaging, Kafka integration. So it's like the microprofilism, like you know the uh, the cloud native Kubernetes goodness, and the Jakarta is more like you know what you already know, Jaxorace, Servlet, JPA, and okay. stuff like that. And the unique thing. Yeah, was I think of Quarkus and I think both of those are really good. Um, one of the things that I've really liked about Java EE and Jakarta EE over the years is you can learn it and then you can use it later. Um, otherwise, there's a lot of frameworks that I watch where it tends to change on a daily or weekly basis and it changes so much that I can't build up a core skill set in it that lasts long enough to merit the time. Um, so if MicroProfile is kind of doing that for the cloud Kubernetes world, then that's probably uh, a thing that's worthwhile to invest time in um, because the aim is basically, will I be able to use this skill in about a year or two, or am I just kind of burning things to, to be on a compatibility treadmill? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the learning the, the skills is uh, good. I mean... If if you don't have to relearn uh, too often, is uh, very good for I would say um, programmer. 
but it's not as good for consultants, you know, because <laughs> you cannot sell as much, you know, consultancy if if everything bec becomes stable. And there's a little bit problem of Java in micro profile because you know at conferences people say you know this is outdated and I don't know uh, whatever legacy, which is not true at all. Um, and uh, yeah, those are those are quite good, and I'm I'm way more in favor of applications that are revenue generating rather than just saying oh we've you know we've generated revenue on that application for three months therefore it's old and we have to throw it out yeah right choose things that work and solve the problem exactly and uh, this is why my clients actually really appreciate also Jakarta and uh, and MicroProfile because they don't actually never had migrated the applications for years so this was really stable and the interesting part of Quarkus and Helidon is. Uh, they fully support MicroProfile. So what means is actually, it is fairly easy to port an old BA or Whitefly or JBoss application to Quarkus. Yep. And, and this is the unique thing because there are other frameworks like for instance, Micronode, which is also very similar to, to Quarkus, but they come with their own API. So so this is, you know, and this MicroProfile, there are several runtimes. Like right now, you can have Payara, Whitefly, Open Liberty, Tommy, Quarkus and Helidon and all of the runtimes support MicroProfile. So you could now you could actually move out your Quarkus application to Helidon and it should run. Um, yeah, I could probably do that. Um, one of the difficulties I have with some of these things is when there's too much mix and match, um, I enter into kind of a paradox of choice where I look somewhere else. Um, so if I can go and look at a framework and the framework can be anything and I can choose my container and I can choose my framework and I can write an API a certain way, but I don't have to there's just you know if i'm going to do something from scratch i might as well go do it from scratch yeah this is what i would i refer sometimes i hear you know best of breed so you can just pick things which are great which i don't believe at all because if you know stick with java for for actually you will find out that you know all the choices do not matter a lot and whitefly has great frameworks and you know payara guys do great things yes and, and there is no a huge difference between them so you should just pick a yeah, runtime. There's not much differentiation. There's not much differentiation in the application server market. Um, maybe there is, but I don't know what it is or why I should look too heavily and be like, oh wow, I really like you know this one over that yeah. one. Yeah, and this is actually cool for developers or, or good for developers or consultants because what we can do is you know we can go to a client and say you know pick whatever you like and we just start coding. So you can you know, stop the entire discussion. Which framework? There's no evaluations, nothing, and what I tell, you know, my managers or, or product managers, just negotiate, you know, with Red Hat, IBM or whoever you like, and then, you know, pick your best support contract and I don't care. I can put your applica application back and forth, which is actually really great. Yeah. And this is what I really appreciate because I don't like, you know, the all, you know, politics and all the stuff. I would like just to... Are you suggesting applications you should write them once and run them in a variety of locations? No, but uh, what uh, what uh, what um, I didn't want to say anywhere. No, what um, what 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 I am talking about is you already mentioned MicroProfile. So if you yeah. if you start with Quarkus, it's not as obvious. But if you would start, for instance, with Whitefly or Payara, what will happen? You get exactly one dependency, which is uh, it's just named MicroProfile three two, and that's all, oh. and you get everything with it. And um, huh. if you if you if you uh, pick another dependency, it's called Jakarta E8. Then you have everything, and this is just API. And then we can start coding, you know. So then, then this discussion okay. is over. So all everything is set up. All the frameworks are there. We can start coding. With Quark, was a little Got bit. Got it. And then you just push it into the runtime. 
Yeah, you, you create a war, you deploy huh. the war, and you are set. So this is my experience for 10 years, let's say. And Quarkus cool. is, a, is a little bit more complicated because it uh, micro-optimizes the deployment, which is a good thing. But you have to know you need Panache, you need JaxRS, and you need all the stuff. So you will have to add, you know, all the, the extensions or dependencies up front. So you have to know about them, which is not a yeah. huge big deal. But uh, what I'm talking about is if you just know I need a micro profile and you, and you know micro profile, your huh. Maven is probably 30 lines of code. Not, not it. Oh, I should probably take a look at that then. Yeah, send you my YouTube uh, link. You will see. So you can build, you know, in three minutes a Java e application, and uh, and Quarkus is like optimized version of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for anything that's easy and lets me focus on the core problem that is why I'm writing the code in the first place. So that sounds great. Yeah, cool. And um, the last thing what I wanted to 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 uh, to, to tell you um, about Quarkus is um, what I really appreciate about Quarkus is not. Uh, how much because i deleted the code i deleting code all the time what what's interesting is the old runtimes or um or servers like all the application servers actually they assumed that we get you know multiple applications deployed on a single jvm yeah and quarkus said no there's one to one relation between application and the runtime and yep. with that they are able to optimize because there is no more deployment you know no more uh, uh runtime deployment so you ship quarkus as a single thing but in in contrary to other frameworks what quarkus does we, uh, quarkus uh, separates the application from the infrastructure so there are two parts and uh right. so this is, which is very good for the clouds for you it doesn't matter because for home automation whether you ship in a one jar or yeah well so my aim is actually to deploy that stuff into the cloud so i was looking at the quarkus lambda http in the way that you can just automatically take your application and push it up there to be behind an, uh, an api gateway via cloud formation and like i i did it successfully i think on the first time um which was great yeah. Okay. Right? So it like I can take my applications, I can run them locally on premise, and then I can just push exactly the same thing up into AWS. Okay. And you use the native mode or the JVM mode? Um, I'm doing things in JVM mode because I have a Windows 10 box, and it's you know I could get Graal VM and put it on there and you know native compile it, but uh, I'll figure I'll just stick in JVM mode for a while. I'll optimize things when it comes to it. Hey, cool. So perfect. It was a nice conversation. And uh, also, I thought you are a sun guy. You are, you are actually an Oracle guy. And now, what's your company yep. name right now? And you are marketing. Yeah, uh, so the company I'm, I'm at now is called Contrast Security. So we're the ones that do uh, software security from the inside, picking out vulnerabilities that actually matter based on what the application does. So extremely easy for developers to um, meet security requirements. And um, in the United States, we have NIST 853 that is followed by a lot of organizations. Um, I don't know if you have the same equivalent in Europe. I think so. <laughs> For sure. Probably these things, all the, all the groups tend to do exactly the same thing, but call it a different name. And if you are the marketing guy from the company, you know, how fit the developers actually are? How when? How, how skilled the developers actually are? Can, can they write a you no know, straight assembly or what? What's the skills of your developers? If you are the marketing guy and you know about the things, you know. 
Um, yeah, so we, we've got a lot of people and actually it's kind of nice that we are bringing people in still, um, with the, the virus. So we do have some roles open there. Um, but some of the things that we do in particular is because we work directly in the run times, we have to have people with knowledge of those run times, right? So we have a lot of guys who write kind of native Java bytecode and deal with instrumentation APIs and everything that goes on there with like the JDK modularity system. Um, and we have similar things for like guys who are really good at understanding the underpinnings of Node about where to hook and where to place sensors. Um, same thing with Ruby. So we need a lot of uh, very good language analysis people. Yeah, cool. Cool jobs. So where people can find you on the internet? Um, contrast is up at contrastsecurity.com and there's also a separate uh, contrast community edition if anybody wants to try it for free or if you want to take a look at it and you know find some security flaws in your application which may very well be there okay perfect and uh, you are on twitter as well yeah i'm on twitter my uh it's just my last name of coslo um I i'm on it i should probably learn how to be a lot better at twitter um but i'm on there and i can talk to people okay thank you and I really appreciate the interview, so it was nice. Thank you very much for the time. Okay, bye. All right, have a great uh, rest of your evening.